1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am Michael Ian Black, your host, your friend, your reader, your confidant, your literary mansplainer. Well, we have a big episode in store for you today because for only the fourth time we are starting a new part part the fourth part the third ended much like all of the previous parts which is to say with jude being bitterly disappointed or about to have his hope stashed or making some plan which will inevitably be foiled by fate kismet is not his friend but who knows perhaps he's about to turn the corner he's about to go see sue She's gotten married, and he's taken leave from the cathedral where he works, and he's about to go, part the fourth, at Shaston, which is where Sue is currently residing. And it starts with a little quote from Milton: "Whoso prefers either matrimony or other ordinance before the good of man and the plain exigence of charity, let him profess." Papist or Protestant, or what he will, he is no better than a Pharisee. (laughs) All right. I mean, so uh, I guess what he's saying is if you choose essentially institutions ahead of the good of man and charity, uh, then you can say whatever you want you can you can say wh- wh- whatever you whatever whatever you want to be. You can say oh, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Protestant or whatever I am, but you're no better than a Pharisee. And I don't know what's wrong in the ph- with the Pharisees, but I know they were spoken ill of in the Bible for all their, you know, Phariseeing around. Shaston, the ancient British halidor, from whose foundation first such strange reports arise, as Drayton sang it. Well, I, you know, thankfully, there's a little. Uh A little note here so we'll go back to see what what the heck that means because i don't know who drayton is i don't know what a palador is hardy seems to have drawn his quotation from drayton's poly albion from hutchins history of dorset rather than directly from drayton drayton does not in his verse use the old name palador or even shaston but says now towards the solent sea as stour her way doth ply On Shaftesbury, by chance, she cast her crystal eye, from whose foundations first such strange reports arise. But Drayton has a note in prose which quotes a piece out of Harding as follows. Care palador that now is Shaftesbury. I mean, I don't know what any of this says. (sighs) Let's just ignore it. I expected to be, uh, be doing a lot more ignoring in this book than I actually have. A lot of times when I'm reading, I just skip over words and phrases that I don't understand, assuming that I'll end up understanding the general gist of things. I do that with TV and movies now, too, because I can't hear half of it with all the advances in speaker technology and surround sound and what have you, half the time, I can't understand what the hell they're saying. Now, is that because I am mostly deaf? Yes. But it also has to do with the fact, I think, that either actors are talking quietly or I, can't, I don't have my, my, my volumes balanced correctly or the speakers aren't placed correctly. But I know many other people. And when I say many other people, I can think of maybe two that have told me this, that say they watch television and movies now with the closed captioning on. I don't do that because I feel like it's a, it's a surrender and I don't want to surrender. I'd rather just not understand. So Shaston was and is in itself the city of a dream. Oh, nice. Vague imaginings of its castle, its three mints, its magnificent apsidal abbey, the great glory of of South Wessex, its 12 churches, its shrines, chantries, hospitals, its gabled freestone mansions, all now, oh, (laughs) ruthlessly swept away. Oh, it sounded so lovely. And now it's all been swept away. Throw the visitor, even against his will, into a pensive melancholy, which the stimulating atmosphere and limitless landscape around him can scarcely Dispel. The spot was the burial place of a king and a queen, of abbots and abbesses, saints and bishops, knights and squires. The bones of King Edward, the martyr, carefully removed hither for holy preservation, brought Shaston, a renowned which made it the resort of pilgrims from every part of Europe, and enabled it to maintain a reputation extending far beyond English shores. To this fair creation of the great middle age, the dissolution was, as historians tell us, the death knell. With the destruction of the enormous abbey, the whole place collapsed in a general ruin, The martyr's bones met with the fate of the sacred pile that held them, and not a stone is now left to tell where they lie. Well, uh, so Shaston sounds a lot like Detroit. Detroit was once a great city. I mean, a fabulous city. You know, the heart of the Midwest, the fourth largest city in America at one point. Huge, great city filled with our own churches and hospitals and 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 freestone mansions, you know, Uh, just of a slightly different nature. It was it was the, the mass production labor and kings were buried there as well. Kings of industry. And then what happened? I don't know, but it collapsed in on itself. And now, you know, it too has a limitless landscape, but uh, you, you go to Detroit, you are going to fa- fall into a pensive melancholy. The natural picturesqueness and singularity of the town still remain, but strange to say these qualities, which were noted by many writers in ages when scenic beauty is said to have been unappreciated, are passed over in this, and one of the queerest and quaintest spots in England stands virtually unvisited Today, It has a unique position on the summit of a steep and imposing scarp rising on the north, south, and west sides of the borough out of the deep alluvial vale of Blackmoor. That's a lovely, I like that. The Vale of Blackmoor. Blackmore. It sounds like something from a Monty Python sketch. The view from Castle Green over three counties of verdant pasture, South Mid and Nether Wessex being as sudden a surprise to the unexpected traveler's eyes as the medicinal air is to his lungs. Impossible to a railway, it can best be reached on foot, next best by light vehicles, and it is hardly accessible to these but by a sort of isthmus, is, is, isthmus, Ugh, I hate that word, on the northeast, and connects it with the high chalk tableland on that side. So it sounds like a magical fairyland. ...that is hidden by the veil of Blackmoor. You can't get to it except by foot and by clicking your heels. And, and that's why people don't visit. Because it's magical. Even though it has fallen into ruins. So it's a little bit like Detroit and a little bit like Narnia. Such is and such was the now world-forgotten Shaston or Palador. Its situation rendered water the great want of the town... Oh you need water, I see, they, they don't have a lot of water. And within living memory, horses, donkeys, and men may have been seen toiling up the winding ways to the top of the height laden with tubes and barrels filled from the wells beneath the mountain, and hawkers retailing their contents at the price of a half penny a bucketful. This difficulty in the water supply, together with two other odd facts, namely, that the chief graveyard slopes up as steeply as a roof behind the church, and that in former times, the town passed through a curious period of corruption, conventual and domestic, gave rise to the saying that Shaston was remarkable for three consolations to man, such as the world afforded not elsewhere. It was a place where the churchyard lay nearer heaven than the church steeple, where beer was more plentiful than water, and where there was more wanton women than honest wives and maids. So quite a place he's describing here. And I feel like he's spending more time describing Shaston than he did certainly in the early parts of either Christminster, uh, Mary Green, or Melchester. He's really devoting a little bit of time here to explaining Shaston to us. It sounds like Hardy himself was fascinated by the place. It is also said that after the Middle Ages, the inhabitants were too poor to pay their priests and hence were compelled to pull down their churches and refrain altogether from the public worship of God, a necessity which they bemoaned over their cups in the settles of their inns on Sunday afternoons. In those days, the Shastonians were apparently not without a sense of humor. Yes, and nobody enjoys humor than Thomas Hardy, the funniest writer in the English language. I'll say it. There, I've said it. Nobody's funnier. Not Dickens, not Twain, not Wilde. It is Hardy, dry though his wit may be. You've heard how many times I've chuckled during this reading. Hardy, who appreciates a sense of humor. There was another peculiarity, This a modern one, which Shaston appeared to owe to its site. It was the resting place and headquarters of the proprietors of wandering vans, shows, shooting galleries, and other itinerant concerns, whose business lay largely at fairs and markets as strange wild birds are seen assembled on some lofty promontory meditatively pausing for longer flights or to return by the course they followed thither so here in this cliff town stood in stultified silence the yellow and green caravans bearing names not local, as if surprised by a change in the landscape so violent as to hinder their further progress, and here they usually remained all the winter till they turned to seek again their old tracks in the following spring. Well, that is a colorful detail, is it not? This is where all the carnies live. This is where all the like weird freak show people come in the off season. In the United States, I feel like that's in Florida or some or or some backwoods town in Georgia, some place where all the carnies can put up their feet and rest after a hard season of manning the tilt-a-whirl and uh, scrambler. It was to this breezy and whimsical spot that Jude ascended from the nearest station for the first time in his life about four o'clock one afternoon and entering on the summit of the peak after a toilsome climb past the first houses of the aerial town and drew towards the schoolhouse. The hour was too early, the pupils were still in school, humming small like a swarm of gnats, and he withdrew a few steps along Abbey Walk, whence he regarded the spot which fate had made the home of all he loved best in the world." In front of the schools, which were extensive and stone-built, grew two enormous beeches with smooth, mouse-colored trunks, as such trees will only grow on chalk uplands. Within the mullioned and transomed windows, he could see the black, brown, and flaxen crowns of the scholars over the sills." and to pass the time away, he walked down to the level terrace where the abbey gardens once had spread his heart throbbing in spite of him unwilling to enter till the children were dismissed he remained here till young voices could be heard in the open air and girls in white pinafores over red and blue frocks appeared dancing along the paths which the abbess prioress sub and fifty nuns had demurely paced three centuries earlier Retracing his steps, he found that he had waited too long and that Sue had gone out into the town at the heels of the last scholar, Mr. Phillotson having been absent all the afternoon at a teacher's meeting in Shotsford. Well, 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 the cat's away. And we've already referred to the mouse-colored beech trunks. So mice are in mind. And you know what mice do when cats are away. The same thing they always do. You know, they forage for food and they, uh, they hole up and they try to keep each other warm. So let's take a break and uh, keep each other warm here on Obscure.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
1: Okay, we're back. Jude is just in Shaston, waiting for Sue. So, I go on. Jude went into the empty schoolroom and sat down, the girl who was sweeping the floor having informed him that Mrs. Phillotson would be back again in a few minutes. A piano stood near, Actually, the old piano that Phillotson had possessed at Marygreen. Do you remember that old piano? It, it it it's it's the piano from the very beginning of the book, and it's how Jude and Phillotson uh, kind of have a first conversation, and and Jude says that he his aunt can store the piano for him, and then he will send for it, and then he passes Phillotson a note in the piano asking for manuscripts. When Phillotson finally does send for it, and here it is again, that old piano, that old silent piano. Nobody has ever made music on it. Phillotson doesn't really play. He got it uh, with the idea that he would learn how to play, but he never really did. And so it's sort of it it sat there. It has followed him around for decades now, unused. Can we say that the piano is like a heart? I don't know if we can say that. That might be a bridge too far. And though the dark afternoon almost prevented him seeing the notes, Jude touched them in his humble way and could not help modulating into the hymn which had so affected him in the previous week. A figure moved behind him and thinking it was still the girl with the broom, Jude took no notice till the person came close and laid her fingers lightly upon his base hand. The imposed hand was a little one he seemed to know, and he turned. Okay, so here we go, guys. Here comes Sue. But at this point, I'm going to call up Kevin Allison. You remember Kevin, if you've been listening, or if you're a fan of the Risk podcast and the state, and I know you are, and he came on to talk to us before about uh, sadomasochism and the spanking machine. He also gave us an uncanny Arabella reading So, I think we need Kevin for this significant meeting between Jude and Sue. Hi, dearie. Hey, how are you? What are we doing? Um, Where are you in this goddamn book? Are you like two-thirds of the way through? Uh... Over halfway, not quite two-thirds. I can't believe you did this, actually, to just choose a book and having no idea <laughs> it, if it was going to be a, a total bore or not. Well, I, I, guess I, was, I guess I was hoping that even if the book were a total bore, that I wouldn't be a total bore. Right. Uh, so, so I'll set the scene here. Jude went into the empty schoolroom and sat down. The girl who was sweeping the floor having informed him that Mrs. Phillotson, that's Sue, by the way, Kevin, because Sue married Richard Phillotson. Now she's. Mrs. Phillotson would be back again in a few minutes. A piano stood near, actually the old piano that Phillotson had possessed at Marygreen. And though the dark afternoon almost prevented him seeing the notes, Jude touched them in his humble way and could not help modulating into the hymn which had so affected him in the previous week. A figure moved behind him, and thinking it was still the girl with the broom, Jude took no notice till the person came close and laid her fingers lightly upon his base hand. The imposed hand was a little one he seemed to know, and he turned. Don't stop. I like it. I learnt it before I left Melchester. They used to play it in the training school. I can't strum it before you. He's a little nervous. You know, he's in love with Sue. He's nervous. He says, I can't strum it before you. Play it for me. Oh, well, I don't mind. Sue sat down, and her rendering of the piece, though not remarkable, seemed divine as compared with his own. She, like him, was evidently touched to her own surprise by the recalled air, and when she had finished, and he moved his hand towards hers, it met his own halfway. Jude grasped it just as he had done before her marriage. It is odd, in a voice quite changed, <laughs> that, that, I, that I should I care, care about that air because. Because what? I am. Not that sort, quite. Not easily moved. I didn't quite mean that. Oh, but you are one of that sort, for you are just like me at heart. But not at head. <laughs> <laughs> She <laughs> Jesus Christ she played on and suddenly turned round and by an unpremeditated instinct each clasped the other's hand again she uttered a forced little laugh as she relinquished his quickly
0: <laughs> how
1: funny <laughs> i wonder I wonder what we both did that for. I suppose because we are both alike as I said before. Not in our thoughts, perhaps a little in our feelings. And they rule thoughts isn't it enough to make one blaspheme that the composer of that hymn is one of the most commonplace men I ever met. What? You know him? Yeah, he's name dropping a little bit cuz he went to go. He went he went to go meet the composer of the hymn. He was so taken with it. He kind of stalked the composer back to his house and uh, kind of fangirled out at him. And the the composer turned out to be just this, like, bitter, uh, nebushy composer who's just bitching about the fact that he can't make any money writing songs. He might might as well be a podcaster. Am I right? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So she goes, what? You know him? And he says, I went to see him. Oh, you goose. Did you... To do just what I should have done. Why did you? Because we are not alike, he said dryly. Well, I think we'll stop there. Shall we, Kevin? A very fine rendition of Sue. Thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm so so touched to come back into this story that I know nothing about. (laughs) You're doing great. I've I've read most of the book to this point, and I I couldn't say I really know anything about it either. It's just words to me. I'm just opening my mouth and words are coming out. There's actually a little bit more to this exchange between Jude and Sue. I will continue on my own. ''Now we'll have some tea,'' said Sue. ''Shall we have it here instead of in my house? It's no trouble to get the kettle and things brought in. We don't live at the school, you know, but in that ancient dwelling across the way called Old Grove Place, it is so antique and dismal that it depresses me dreadfully. Such houses are very well to visit, but not to live in. I feel crushed into the earth by the weight of so many previous lives there spent.'' Right. Well, that is true with Sue, isn't it? That all the lives that have come before, they feel like a crushing burden to her. And she wishes either for antiquity or modernity, but not in her present state. In a new place like these schools, there is only your own life to support. Sit down and I'll tell Ada to bring the tea things across. He waited in the light of the stove, the door of which she flung open before going out, and when she returned, followed by the maiden with tea, they sat down by the same light, assisted by the blue rays of a spirit lamp under the brass kettle on the stand. "'This is one of your wedding presents to me,' she said, signifying the latter. "'Yes,' said Jude." The kettle of his gift sang with some satire in its note to his mind. And to change the subject, he said, Do you know of any good readable edition of the uncanonical books of the New Testament? You don't read them in school, I suppose. Oh, do you know? To alarm, the neighborhood. Yes, there is one. I am not familiar with it now, though I was interested in it when my former friend was alive. Cowper's Apocryphal Gospels. So to change the subject, he starts talking, as you do, about the Bible, or rather about the books that aren't in the Bible. Uh, There's a note about this. It says, uh, this is Cowper's Apocryphal Ghosts published in 1867. I'm not sure why that merited an entire note that I had to flip to, but it did. That sounds like what I want. His thoughts, however, reverted with a twinge to the, former friend by whom she meant, as he knew, the university comrade of her earlier days. He wondered if she talked of him to Phillotson. The gospel of Nicodemus is very nice, she went on, to keep him from his jealous thoughts, which she read clearly, as she always did. Indeed, when they talked on an indifferent subject as now, there was ever a second silent conversation passing between their emotions, so perfect was the reciprocity between them. Quote, it is quite like the genuine article all cut up into verses two, so that it is like one of those evangelists read in a dream, when things are the same, yet not the same. But Jude did you take an interest in those questions still? Are you getting up apologetica? Yes, I'm reading divinity harder than ever. She regarded him curiously. Why do you look at me like that, said Jude? Oh, why do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why does she have to be so querulous? Just, why do you look at me like that? Why do you want to know? I mean, Sue, just you and your games. You like always playing Parcheesi. I am sure you can tell me anything I may be ignorant of in that subject. You must have learned a lot from everything from your dear dead friend. (laughs) And he's being a dick too. God, they just don't stop. I hope they never get together. Or I hope they get together once and then die. I'll be back. This is Obscure. Back on Obscure and Jude and Sue are still at it, giving each other the business, and I love it. So I'm picking back up here with Sue. We won't get on that now, she coaxed. Will you be carving out at the church again next week where you learnt the pretty hymn? Yes, perhaps. That will be very nice. Shall I come and see you there? It is in this direction, and I could come any afternoon by train for half an hour. No, don't come. What, aren't we going to be friends then any longer as we used to be? No. Well, I didn't know that. I thought you were always going to be kind to me. No, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done then? I am sure I thought we too. The tremolo in her voice caused her to break off. Sure, Sue. Oh, and then he says, Sue. I sometimes think you are a flirt, said he abruptly. Oh, there was a momentary pause till she suddenly jumped up, and to his surprise, he saw by the kettle flame that her face was flushed. I can't talk to you any longer, Jude, she said, the tragic contralto note having come back as of old. It is getting too dark to stay together like this, after playing morbid Good Friday tunes that make one feel what one shouldn't. We mustn't sit and talk in this way any more. Yes, you must go away, for you mistake me. I am very much the reverse of what you say so cruelly. Oh, Jude, it was cruel to say that. Yet I can't tell you the truth. <laughs> yet I can't tell you the truth. She said this before, and then she immediately proceeds to tell him the truth, whatever the truth is. So then she says, I should shock you by letting you know how much I give way to my impulses and how much I feel that I shouldn't have been provided with attractiveness unless it were meant to be exercised. Some women's love of being loved is insatiable, and so often is their love of loving, and in the last case, they may find that they can't give it continuously to the chamber officer appointed by the bishop's license to receive it. Oh, dear. But you are so straightforward, Jude, that you can't understand me. Now you must go. I am sorry my husband is not at home. So she's saying some women And clearly, she means herself in this regard. Love of being loved is insatiable. And we uh, have speculated on this about Sue from the very beginning. That really what she wants is to be adored. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, like uh, the way a statue is adored. In that it can't return the feeling. But she wants to have a Jude's light on her at all times so that she may bask in its warmth. But she can't reflect it fully. She can't give it back to him for reasons that are her own. But then she says her love of being loved is insatiable. And so often is their love of loving and in the last case, they may find that they can't give it continuously to the chamber officer appointed by the bishop's license to receive it. In other words, she's not that crazy about her husband. It's like, you know, Phillotson has the license there. He's got a marriage license. And so she should be continuously loving him, but she finds she cannot. And maybe she herself doesn't know why, but she feels stifled in her ability To give love. Her chi is blocked, as they say. I mentioned we were watching Fargo, and uh, now we're on season three. And in one of the first episodes, uh, Ewan McGregor, his girlfriend tells him his chi is blocked. And I think that's true with Sue as well, don't you know? I'm sorry my husband is not at home, are you? I perceive I have said that in mere conversation. Honestly, I don't think I am sorry. It does not matter either way, sad to say as they had overdone the grasp of hands sometime sooner. She touched his fingers, but lightly, when he went out now. He had hardly gone from the door when, with a dissatisfied look, she jumped on a form and opened the iron casement of a window beneath which he was passing in the path without. When do you leave here to catch your train, Jude? she asked. He looked up in some surprise. The coach that runs to meet it goes in three quarters of an hour or so. What will you do with yourself for the time? Oh, wander about, I suppose. Perhaps I shall go and sit in the old church. It does seem hard of me to pack you off so. You have thought enough about churches, heaven knows, without going into one in the dark. Stay there. Where? Where you are. I can talk to you better like this than when you were inside. It was so kind and tender of you to give half a day's work to come see me. You are Joseph, the dreamer of dreams, dear Jude, and a tragic Don Quixote, and sometimes you are Saint Stephen, who, while they were stoning him, could see heaven opened. Oh, my poor friend and comrade, you will suffer yet. Now that the high window sill was between them, so that he could not get at her, She seemed not to mind indulging in a frankness she had feared at close quarters. I've been thinking, she continued, still in the tone of one brimful of feeling, that the social mould civilization fits us into have no more relation to our actual shapes than the conventional shapes of the constellations have to the real star patterns. I am called Mrs. Richard Phillotson." living a calm, wedded life with my counterpart of that name. But I am not really Mrs. Richard Phillotson, but a woman tossed about, all alone, with aberrant passions and unaccountable antipathies. Now you mustn't wait longer or you will lose the coach. Come and see me again. You must come to the house then. Yes, said Jude. When shall it be? Tomorrow week. Goodbye goodbye she stretched out her hand and stroked his forehead pitifully just once jude said goodbye and went away into the darkness passing along bimport street he thought he heard the wheels of the coach departing and truly enough when he reached the duke's arm in the marketplace the coach had gone It was impossible for him to get to the station on foot in time for this train, and he settled himself perforce to wait for the next, the last to Melchester that night. He wandered about a while obtained something to eat, and then, having another half hour on his hands, his feet involuntarily took him through the venerable graveyard of Trinity Church, with its avenue of limes in the direction of the schools again. They were entirely in darkness. She had said she lived over the way at Old Grove Place, a house which he soon discovered from her description of its antiquity." a glimmering candlelight shone from a front window the shutters being yet unclosed he could see the interior clearly the floor sinking a couple of steps below the road without which had become raised during the centuries since the house was built sue evidently just come in was standing with her hat on in this front parlor or sitting room whose walls were lined with wainscoting of paneled oak reaching from floor to ceiling the latter being crossed by huge molded beams only a little way above her head the mantelpiece was of the same heavy description carved with jacobean pilasters and scrollwork the centuries did indeed ponderously overhang a young wife who passed his time here. She had opened a reswood Rosewood workbox and was looking at a photograph. Having contemplated it a little while, she pressed it against her bosom and put it again in its right, right place. Then becoming aware that she had not obscured the windows, she came forward to do so, candle in hand. It was too dark for her to see Jude without, but he could see her face distinctly, and there was an unmistakable tearfulness about the dark, long-lashed eyes. She closed the shutters, and Jude turned away to pursue his solitary journey home. Whose photograph was she looking at, he said. He had once given her his, but she had others, he knew. Yet it was his, surely. He knew he should go to see her again according to her invitation those earnest men he read of the saints whom sue with gentle irreverence called his demi-gods would have shunned such encounters if they doubted their own strength but he could not he might fast and pray during the whole interval but the human was more powerful in him than the divine well that is the end of chapter one in the fourth part of Jude the Obscure. And I found that whole last stretch lovely and moving and tender and so right in keeping with the theme of the book, which is the best that I can tell how we all have a little bit more humanity in us than divinity. How all of us are given to uh, these kinds of uh What did Sue call them? We are all given to aberrant passions and unaccountable antipathies. So that's all of us, right? Jude has been fighting those aberrant passions his entire life and getting nowhere with it. He's just sort of given up. And he's like, yeah, a better man than me wouldn't go back to see Sue. But fuck it. I'm going back. I'll just go right back on through that spanking machine. So here we are. The end of chapter one, part the fourth. Guys, they're doing their best. Just a couple of kids, you know, in bad circumstances. Mrs. Richard Phillotson standing there at the window saying to her cousin, it's not who I am. It's just not who I am. I'm living a ghost's life among other ghosts. It's not who I am. A lot to think about, guys. But what a lovely episode. You know, not the episode, but the, the chapter. I mean, look, was I very good? Of course. I was very good today. Until next week, I wish all of you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
0: Dale, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Raisa Lisea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Spanish Aqui Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿Qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aquí Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Spanish Aquí Presents!